Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. recognize that word. Big companies recorded millions of hours of audio to get their voice systems to work. And if you want to build your own system, you either have to buy it from somewhere, which is expensive, or record it yourself, which can take forever. Mission data for everyone. For those who don't know, Mozilla is the Firefox. Okay, so it says the tallest living man at 8 foot 3 inches tall is Sultan Kosin of Turkey. He was born in 1982. That's pretty good. Just six years ago, I couldn't have done that. There was no Siri, no Alexa, no Cortana. Now voice recognition is everywhere, and it's all thanks to AI. But AI doesn't learn language the same way we do. A baby can learn a new word after hearing it just a few times, but AI needs to hear a word hundreds, spoken in different ways by different people, before it can really recognize that word. Big companies have recorded millions of hours of audio to get their voice systems to work. If you want to build your own voice system, you either have to buy it from somewhere, which is expensive, or record it yourself, which can take forever. That's why Mozilla launched Project Common Voice. Mozilla Common Voice is a project to open up voice recognition data to everyone. For those who don't know, Mozilla is a nonprofit behind the Firefox browser, and full disclosure, also my employer. But Here's how Common Voice works. People from all over the world read text at the Common Voice website, which records the voice data. It's all volunteer and it's all open source. Mozilla is also using that data to train its own voice recognition AI, which will also be open source and free for anyone to use. In this episode, I talk with head of Common Voice project, Kelly Davis. Kelly is a trained physicist who studied string theory before getting hooked on artificial intelligence in the late 90s. We talked about AI art collectives, his fascination with creating an intelligent agent, Project Common Voice, and a little about the future of humanity. I apologize for the sound quality. Kelly is in Germany and our conversation was recorded with a conference room mic, so there's a bit of an echo. So without further ado, here's my interview with Kelly Davis of Mozilla. I'm Kelly Davis. I'm the manager slash technical lead of the machine learning group of Mozilla. I'm working on various different projects, including uh, DeepSpeech, a speech recognition engine, uh, Common Voice, uh, open data set of speech, and also other projects in terms of, say, speech synthesis and natural language understanding, in particular, say, automatic summarization and things like this. What inspired you to get into artificial intelligence and and voice recognition. I mean, strangely enough, I think probably first started around the end of the 1990s when I was sort of working in startups in Washington, D.C. I mean, at this time, it was sort of dimly realized, I guess, myself and a few other of my colleagues kind of dimly realized a lot where, uh, that a lot was changing, let's say, in the realm of computers and the realm of computers understanding what people can say and being able to transcribe that into text and or create speech. Um, and we kind of dimly realized this at this point and the technology was there but sort of very not mature I'd say in that way. So instead of actually really trying to sort of recognize this, instead of trying to actually uh, let's say ground a startup based upon technology like this, we actually decided to create an art, art collective, which is sort of a strange, backwards way of doing things. Uh, we created this group called Sentient Art, and what we actually did is create created installations that actually, let's say, used machine learning and artificial intelligence, in particular uh, neural networks, to actually uh, interact with the gallery goers. That was kind of like the first real exposure to, say, neural networks and machine learning and what have you that I had. It was sort of a backwards way of doing things, like a roundabout strange way of approaching the, the topic through 
installation art. <laughs> that was sort of the first time that I did. I probably had with sort of machine learning and speech recognition and various other things in this in this realm. And, and so this is now, now you were studying string theory oh. when you first ran into this and 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 the origins of the, of the universe itself. Uh, and so what was it about, I guess, voice recognition and, and AI that that pulled you away from? away from hmm. studying physics and string theory? I don't know if it pulled me away from it. It was sort of, it was also a, a secondary interest, I'd say, in that way. I mean, I guess, this, how do I say it? It's sort of also, other than being fascinated with the universe and fascinated with sort of our place in the universe and how the actual universe works, in some sense of the word, work, um, it's fascinating to think about actually creating an a, agent is maybe sort of a, a very non-biased way of saying something, a, a sort of entity that's able to converse and think and talk. It's sort of very fascinating to think of this. I mean, this sort of, uh, I'm reminded of one of the actually things probably would have been too at the time and even now is sort of a book by uh, Richard Powers called Galatea 2.2. Sort of a, the title comes from a myth. Basically, a sculptor actually created a, a sort of a sculpt, a sculptor that basically created some of his work that was actually sort of brought to life by the gods. And it's sort of a similar thing. One can think about it in creating a agent, use, use very sort of neutral term, agent is able to converse and talk with you. It's sort of this um, bringing something to life. And the book really covers, to some extent, um, the, the sort of, I'd say, uh, trials, <laughs> tribulations involved in actually creating an agent that's able, able to converse and how this agent kind of, let's say, learns of our world and learns of our foibles <laughs> when, when, when sort of coming to life. And so your first encounter with something like this was the art collective. Yeah, yeah, strangely enough. I mean, really strangely enough. It's sort of a, a strange way to approach it. I mean, at the time, though, in the late 90s, it was sort of, I'd say artificial intelligence and neural networks and deep learning. I guess deep learning wasn't even really existing as a term at that time. It was more so neural networks. At the time, it was very... There was a lot of promise there, I'd say, for what it could do. However, sort of the actual, it wasn't delivering all this promise at the time. It was very, very much sort of nascent technology then, and it wasn't really to the state where it is now, where it's sort of, it's a speech recognition, in particular now, speech recognition is kind of not solved, but very much kind of a, it's more technology problems as opposed to a research problem really right now. It's just a lot of work has gone in the last, intervening 20 years, a lot of this gun is actually improving speech recognition in particular. However, there's still, even now, there's still gaping, uh, let's say, open research problems, in particular around speech, un un not speech understanding, understanding language. Just, it's much more complicated, I'd say, than mm -hmm. understanding speech. It isn't sort of a, a relatively simple problem where people you can have audio and translate this audio into text is understanding what someone says is I didn't even know <laughs> it's often I, I laugh because I think lots of the case even I'm talking to someone as their person how do you know that they understood what I've said even obtaining that or sort of like codifying that is a hard thing to do and then sort of trying to do that with a computer which adds another, another level of difficulty is much much harder thing to be doing or to do yeah yeah i think that that gets to uh, the root of one of my earlier one of my questions that i posed which is the challenges with voice recognition yeah um yeah. but it, so tell me about i guess what was going on in this i hate to dwell on this but the art collective i imagine that you were experimenting maybe with a uh, with speech to text or what exactly was, was taking place? Like, what was the art project? We had several different things we were doing. I mean, play, for example, one of the things we did, which is sort of, I give two examples, let's say. 
like one of the pieces we were working on was kind of the thing. Uh, also, I guess at the time, we were thinking about privacy and how privacy was being breached a lot by technology. So one of the pieces we would do was we did, let's say, was um, essentially like installation that allowed you to you come there that ask you sort of simple questions about your name, like where you live and things like this. And then it would actually, let's say, create a profile for you. It would go on the web and actually create a sort of profile of more information that would glean from the web about you, just giving you like your name and about approximately where you live. And the, the thing was this, it wasn't already always accurate. And that was actually kind of part of the, the point of it in a way. It was sort of the idea that this entity could be, uh, let's say, obtaining information about you that wasn't always accurate. And these particular, particular decisions, they bank decisions, loan decisions, things like this could be made on such incorrect information. That's one piece we're doing. Another piece we're working on was sort of um, basically trying to, <laughs> even, I mean, I guess it came down to really creating kind of agent, but I mean, at the time you couldn't really do this, so you would be talking to a child. The idea was you'd be talking to a child and talking to the child about uh, experiences the child had, and the child was a survivor of World War II. And as part of the installation, it was basically creating a neural network, which is kind of like something like a sequence and sequence model at the time, but um, basically creating a neural network that you could actually talk to. But because the technology wasn't really mature, I'd say, at the time, we had to, one of the things is one of the reasons we actually chose to work sort of to emulate a child because it, you could get away with essentially having sort of not perfect speech, get away with, let's say, having slightly incorrect answers because it was sort of a child and you would expect that to some extent for a child. Whereas now, they, most agents, if they were to do, if they were to sort of incorrectly understand what you said or give an incorrect answer or anything like this, it would be viewed as a, as a failure as opposed to sort of, oh, that's what one expects from, from this type of entity. That's an example. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like you were way ahead of the time <laughs> you guys are working on. I mean, and, and back then, I'm, you know, I remember really the only speech recognition or speech-to-text game in town was like Dragon Naturally Speaking. Yeah. Yeah. which I remember it being just um, not very good and extremely expensive. Um, the only people I knew who really used it were lawyers who had to dictate a lot. Um, and they had have, they have limited hit-or-miss success with it. Um, but now something like Dragon, I mean, is... It's not even on the radar. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've come so far. Um, yeah. it, it, it's, it's insane to think of a world that, that didn't have such great uh, speech-to-text, even though that world was only a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's I mean, really it's amazing the amount of progress that has occurred in the intervening, say, 20 or so years. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things I think also which is interesting is that especially now, especially within the last, say, 10-ish years, um, the progress is, like, compounding. I think that's the way of thinking about it. And we'll think about it in a way in terms of, say, like, compound interest and in that progress begets progress begets progress, and it's sort of the, the rate of progress is, is accelerating. And I think that sort of makes it hard to predict sort of what will come in five years or 10 years. Like, five, it's sort of... Yeah, things are accelerating to the extent where sort of then, like 20 years ago, predicting five years in the future was a much easier task, whereas now five years in the future is in some sense kind of much further away, if that makes any sense. Well, it's that, it's that exponential growth. Um, yeah. yeah, so you became, you became fascinated with creating this agent, this sort of entity that you could talk to and could react to res- respond to you into the computer. And from there, uh, you went on to found some more, st- another startup that, that was along the same lines and eventually um, working now with Mozilla on the project Common Voice. So tell me about that startup, I believe it was called 42? Yeah. Yeah, yeah which, uh, which 
for anybody who's not, I'm sure every, anyone who's going to be listening to this knows the significance of that number as being the answer to everything, life, the universe, and everything. Um, so obviously you're a big Douglas Adams fan, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which is fantastic. Um, so, so tell me about that. Is that more along the same thing? So that's, that's another step in creating that agent? Yeah, it is. In a way. I mean, uh, what I guess around the time we started the startup was around 2011, I'd say. Um, I guess it was work that IBM was doing, in particular work on their original Watson, I, this computer that was able to answer general knowledge questions and actually got, say, a place on Jeopardy, which is sort of a TV show in America where people are asked questions about sort of relatively obscure or not obscure topics and win money as a result of it. Mm -hmm. uh, IBM's Watson was on this TV show and actually won against various other champions, which is which had won against other humans previously. Um, and we were, I guess, motivated at the time we to because of the architecture and because of some of the research that uh, IBM did around Watson, um, we were motivated to actually use or reuse or build upon this research to actually create a agent that was able to answer general knowledge questions, but it was based uh, these answers upon web data. So basically it would be able to, you'd ask it a question, this could be, I don't know, what's the national bird of the US, something like this, and it would essentially what it amounts to, it would do a Google search or Bing search or whatever search, of the web, find web pages which had sort of relevant information, whatever that might mean. So maybe maybe look up the terms of America, bird, national, something like this. But find various different web pages which has these has these words in it, and would scan these web pages to find out sort of possible answers for the question, and then it would essentially do this in 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 parallel in various different ways. So it have sort of sub-agents that would actually try to pull out answers in various different ways. It had, I, the way it essentially worked, more or less, was it had 50, 100 different sort of sub-agents that would each be able to find answers of particular types. And then at the very end, it would, it would essentially vote. <laughs> so these 50 or 100 agents would actually read these, these web pages that found, and one would say, oh, yeah, eagle. Another one would say, oh, no, it's a Baltimore Oriole. Another one would say, oh, yeah, it's an eagle. And at the very end of this, the process, these 50 or 100 agents would kind of vote on what the correct answer was, and it would return answers essentially based upon this voting of these very different agents. So the agents themselves are really kind of individually dumb, but so the collective intelligence kind of made this whole thing relatively smart and able to answer questions which are, I don't know, I'd say sort of surprising in, in some way. I mean, it, <laughs> To give a concrete example, one of a stupid question, just in terms of testing, we would ask it things like, um, who is the tallest man in the world? Things like this. And at one point, I remember giving an answer. I don't remember the guy's name now, but there's a band called the tallest man in the world or something like this. And it gave the actual, the band consists of one member and it gave this guy's name. And, and the first time I saw that, I thought like, what? What's wrong with this? Like, why is it saying this? There's actually, I think this Turkish guy is actually the tallest guy in the world. But when you realize, like, so the logic of why it did it, it came to repair that would, I mean, it made sense. The answer is kind of correct in some sense of the word, but at the same time, it's sort of surprising. There's sort of interesting things like that, which sort of would surprise you, but also sort of entertain in a way. I think there's, uh, there's that sort of childlike uh, response that sometimes the, the early AI you know, would give you, would return. <laughs> and, and that's kind of a good, it kind of leads into what we were saying earlier about the challenges of understanding uh, human voice and that, you know, for human beings, even it's hard to explain to someone else that you understand them. Yeah. And yet for humans, the human mind, it's, it's very easy to understand especially your native language, and it's possible to learn and understand other languages. Um, and it seems to be something that we do very naturally and very quickly. But a computer, even a network of computers, it has there's no context 
for it. It's, yeah. it's, it's completely foreign, right? Um, so, you know, what are the, the main challenges, or can you explain the main challenges to teach computer how to understand what we're saying? <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if I can, can do that. I mean, I think start? understanding is, is a very much it's a, having computer understand is a unsolved problem. I don't think people really sure. know how to do that say, in a way. Well, I'd say maybe maybe not understand in the sense in the sense of like I understand what you're telling me or having mm -hmm. a, or having a conscience, but just just the mechanics of being able to tell uh, recognize a word when it's oh, spoken, that. yeah, by with different accents, yeah. it's spoken with you know by different people, different pitch levels of voice. It's something that we can pick up very easily. If I say yeah. mountain someone else's mountain, it could sound almost like a completely different word, like it's a nonsensical. If you were, you know, were to graph it or you look at the sound wave, but for a person, it's very easy to understand. Oh, that's mountain. That's the word mountain. So that's sort of what uh, Project Common Voice is getting at, is, 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 pro is providing that, uh, that language set for the computer to be able to understand what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I'd say, yeah, I guess I was sort of, the word understand is always a slippery slope for me. I, I'd say yeah. maybe just the sort of very concrete, let's say, teaching a computer how to translate speech audio into text. That's sort of a yeah. much more concrete problem. Actually, it's, 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 Strange in that, maybe not that strange. I mean, what one does is usually it's the core of any algorithm that, that translates uh, audio, speech audio into text is really kind of basically learning by seeing a whole bunch of examples. So, I mean, the core of what one does is the first thing one does is have to collect a lot of data. And by a lot of data, I mean somewhere in the order of a year of continuous audio of people speaking and associated transcripts of that. And what one does is assuming one has the right algorithm for the moment, you essentially feed this speech data to the right, correct algorithm. You basically say, here's some audio, and here's a transcript of the audio. And the, the, the machine initially is just kind of initializing some random state, and it slowly learns by looking at, yeah, hundreds of thousands of the examples. It slowly learns that, oh, now this kind of particular auto features may correspond to the word mountain. And what happens is, I guess, actually interesting, I, I don't claim to know, I don't think anyone claims to really know at this point, sort of what features the actual uh, neural networks kind of pull out of there. It actually, because it has to learn, essentially from these examples, what the word mountain actually looks like in terms of audio features. So basically, it's given the audio, it may be taking something like a Fourier transform of the audio, maybe do sort of slight variance on this Fourier transform, and then from this sort of information, it kind of learns what features to look for in this feature space that correspond to the word mountain, or tree, or water, or sea. And it only learns that through repetition and repetition and repetition and repetition. I mean, say for example, for our speech recognition engine, our current models are trained about on about 3,000, a little over 3,000 hours of audio, and we have to run that through the system continually for about two weeks, something like this, before we get sort of a reasonable model out of it. So it's really just, the, the, I guess, the key part of it in terms of sort of the, the algorithmic part of it, and also in terms of the data part of it, is kind of repetition of audio examples. And these audio examples, I'd say, that's one of the important reasons why I'd say Common Voice needs lots of data is because it needs to see, the system itself needs to see a variety of examples so it can actually sort of tease out exactly what you were talking about in terms of what, what characterizes the word mountain when 20 different people say it or a thousand different people say it. There's some kind of core thing which is there and it's hard for us, even as people, to because I mean, I know I can hear a person say mountain and know what it is. I can hear a man say it, a woman say it, a child say it. And I know the word. I know, oh, they said mountain. But if you ask me sort of how, I, yeah, how do I do that? Like, I couldn't answer that in a way. I mean, it's sort of strange because when we're teaching these computers to actually understand 
the word mountain or tree or fish or water. Like I, when the computer's done, it, we're kind of in the same state as, as we are as humans. You could ask me like, how did it understand? Like, what did it see in this audio that it knew, knew, knew that is the word mountain? I'm not sure. I mean, I know it knows that information because you can kind of test it. You can give it different people saying the word mountain and it gets it correct. But sort of what it's pulling out from this audio, like what features it sees in the audio that sort of characterize the word mountain, I don't think I know. I mean, it's strangely enough, I think that's only recently become a research topic that people are sort of concerned with is sort of explainability of machine learning. This is only really in the last couple of months that people have really started listening to this. I think it's because of machine learning is becoming more and more, let's say, prevalent in, in decision-making. Say, for example, um, automatic car driving, like automated driving systems, where you, you may need to know, like, oh, why did this thing decide to turn right instead of left here? Why did it swerve left instead of, you know, mm -hmm. right here? You, you, we need to know these kind of things for, if nothing else, legal reasons. So people are starting to research that now, but I think it's still very much a new field with explainability in machine learning. Yeah, it's the, it's the black box problem, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what they're, they're calling it, yeah, what's going on inside the black box. Yeah. Um, yeah and I think, you know, an interesting point, you're talking about all the different data that a voice recognition system needs to work. And um, traditionally, a lot of that data has been proprietary. And then there are large data sets, or there are, you know, millions an hour of hours of recordings, but it's um, it's owned by specific companies. And so Project Common Voice is uh, an effort to replicate that data, but make it all open source, so anyone can use it in their own voice recognition. Yeah, I mean that's one of the yeah yeah that's one of the big problems in open source speech recognition. I mean probably is the big problem I'd say is a lack of open data that allow you to train your own speech recognition engine. I mean really right now in terms of speech recognition in particular, there's sort of maybe a handful of companies that actually control all speech recognition engines that are of sort of production level quality, and there's no sort of open alternative. In particular, the, I guess the biggest part is there's no open data sets that are alternative, alternatives to that. Um, and Common Voice is aiming to change the state of affairs. I mean, right now, English, you can get some open data, but I mean, once you actually try any other language in English, you can forget it. Even with English, sort of the sort of year of data you need, the year of audio you need to train the production system isn't open. There's no, no way to get that much data in an open way. And once you try something like, I don't know, Mandarin or something like this, you can completely forget it. You're not going to be able to create an open speech recognition engine. And that's really what we're trying to sort of address with Common Voice. We're trying to open the speech recognition sort of world to the open source, open source world, allowing people to actually create speech recognition engines in their languages of choice or in create data sets or their languages of choice and open these data sets to the world. I mean, one could think of the case of the web and 20 years ago, whatever, it'd be, one could think of, oh, well, assume what would have happened to the web if, say, a handful of companies had held the keys to this game. I, you basically, if you had to get permissions from one of these companies to create a website, and if they actually gave you permission, then you had to pay every time someone visited, you had to pay one of these companies every time someone visited one of your websites. I mean, that would, it sounds absurd in a way, and it would have really, let's say, destroyed the web in some sense of the word. The web would not be as prevalent as it is today if that were the case. However, that's exactly the situation we're in with speech recognition. Speech recognition is becoming more and more prevalent and more and more relevant to the world. But at the same time, uh, speech recognition is really, really controlled by only a handful of companies. And it's this sort of weird situation we're in that Congress is trying to address that by creating open data sets that anyone can actually use and use to create a speech recognition engine. Now, and actually using Common Voice itself is actually really simple. I mean, you just go to voice.mizzle.org and you actually can just read the sentence and record yourself reading the sentence and that's sort of contributing to our data set. Or alternatively, um, you can verify someone else's read sentence. So basically, you see the sentence that they 
were asked to read and you hear the audio of them reading it and you just say, okay, yes, they said this sentence correctly or no, they didn't say this sentence correctly. And just something as simple as that, you don't need any huge technical expertise to actually contribute, but when you contribute, you'll be helping open uh, the speech ecosystem of the world. And, and opening up, um, you know, innovation as well. Like you were saying, if only a handful, and uh, ironically, the web is uh, is is consolidating um, right now. But you know, 20 years ago, it it, it was it's op extremely open. There was a tremendous amount of innovation. So we want to try to bring that same spirit into voice recognition. Yeah. So you know. We were talking about that black box and the sort of even after a voice recognition system can can figure out or, or not necessarily understand but can recognize a particular word, you don't know how it got there. And to, to me, that is, is, it's almost like magic in a lot of ways, <laughs> is yeah. you're feeding, you're feeding this very simple, seemingly simple neural network, a ton of information, and it eventually learns, and you just, and you don't know how, and um, like, you know, that sends a chill down my spine for a number of reasons. Not, not, it's not that it's scary, it's, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's very amazing. Um, so, you know, I, my question would be is, um, you know, how does that process, <laughs> how does that work, and, and what does that, what does that feel like? I mean, the first time that you, you teach a, com a computer how to recognize a word, you know, what does that, what does that feel like, and what, what goes through your head when that happens? <laughs> I mean, I guess I remember when you were first starting deep speech, we, we used a single example sentence and a sing single example sort of transcription of the sentence. It's actually from example sentence from this timid um, speech corpora. Um, and I remember the first time it actually, we realized like this is actually working. You could see it was just, it was kind of overfitting and not perfect and everything. We're just sort of more testing the code than anything else. But at the same time, you realize like after, I don't know, five minutes of training, 10 minutes of training, it actually sort of recognized what this crazy audio was and actually was able to transcribe this in, this in the speech. It was sort of magic in a way. I mean, even though you kind of know, like intellectually, you know, okay, I know it's doing back propagation there, it's propagating this derivatives through, and it's you looking at the difference between the output and the desired output and the real output. And then, you know, you sort of, in some sense of the word, you know, kind of, the steps involved in a way, in some kind of like very low level way, but then this kind of emergent ability arises from these very low levels of derivatives, back, back, back propagation steps and things like this. Like from these low level things, this kind of emergent behavior arises and then it's still slightly magical, I'd say in a, more, in a way when it first starts happening, even though it's, even though you kind of intellectually know what's going on to some extent, but at the same time sort of the, the details that emerge and the abilities that emerge out of these sort of low-level constructs is still slightly magical. At least the first time it happened, it's slightly magical. Now it's kind of, after a year of doing it, you're kind of like, okay, it's going to learn. I'm not really worried about it. But the first time it happened, it was very much like, like wow, we just built something that actually recognizes speech. This is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I think you know, it, it does get back to the black box. I mean, even the, the our own minds are sort of a black yeah. box. Um, we're in this strange place where we're we're able to create machines that can learn, but we're not even really positive how we learn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it I, ironic, yeah, it's very strange, and it's um, I think ironically too that there's talk of actually using the AI that we create to help us understand how our brains work. Yeah. We're creating this sort of bizarre loop, um, you know, and create this this entity that we don't fully understand to help us understand ourselves. <laughs> yeah. 
I think it actually reminds me there was some research I read of only sort of glanced at, I'd say, not read in any, any kind of detail, but they people were uh, essentially looking at brain scans, I think they're MRIs, of various different people as they looked at pictures. So basically, they'd show a person a picture and record the output, so the electrical activity in their brain. So another picture records the electrical activity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they built up essentially a data set where this, this picture causes this kind of electrical activity, this other picture causes this electrical activity, and essentially, once you have this data set of these pairs, you can relatively, in a relatively straightforward way, basically train a neural network to go the other way, just basically go from some particular electrical activity to actually the picture this person was seeing. So what they would do is, is with this information, they could then kind of, in some primitive sense of the word, kind of read people's minds. Mm-hmm. You could have a person look at a picture and you, from this electrical activity that you see as a result of them looking at the picture, you could guess what picture they're looking at. I mean, it was still definitely primitive state and the pictures were, produced pictures were blurry and what have you, but I mean, it's sort of strange how, how at least in this case, the neural network technology is not, the reasoning wasn't complicated. I mean, all the pieces together, like separately, are, are not complicated, but once you put them together, you have this sort of strange, slightly worrying, I'd say, <laughs> ability that arises, like the fact that you can actually, I mean, in a very real sense, like read person's read a person's mind, which is mm-hmm. strange. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's insane if you can figure out how to sort of decode the electrical activity mm-hmm. of thought, then you know, <coughs> brain-to-brain communication becomes possible. Yeah, and it actually even strange too, because I've been thinking about sort of the lack of interpretability of the neural network itself. I mean, it kind of. To some extent, it still doesn't, even with this sort of mind-reading ability, if you will, it still doesn't elucidate what's really going on in our brains. We only know kind of this somehow strange random pattern corresponds to this image. Like why it does or anything like that, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, and, and who knows if we'll ever truly know. Um, yeah. And I, you bring up the picture recognition problem, which I know that Google spent just an unimaginable amount of time and data, you know, teaching it, teaching its system how to recognize pictures. Um, and again, you, you know, you're saying you have to feed this system, you know, I don't, I don't remember the exact amount, but to get it to recognize a cat, it had to see, I don't know, millions of pictures of a cat. But on the other hand, a two-year-old or even a one-year-old person for that, for that matter, you could show them two pictures of a cat, and it would, and you, the child would yeah. recognize a cat in any picture you show it from that point on for the rest of its life. It only, it only takes two, maybe yeah. even one picture, right? Um, so there's obviously something, and we don't, we don't understand how that works, but there's obviously some sort of very efficient, fast, amazing feedback loop that's happening in the brain that allows people to learn so quickly when compared to, and with such a limited amount of data when compared to these systems that we're building. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I don't think, and I don't think anyone, any researcher really thinks this at this point. I don't think sort of current deep learning neural network architectures are really kind of to the extent, sort of evolved to the extent that they're going to evolve to. I mean, I think there's, a whole undiscovered territory in the world of deep learning that are many undiscovered territories. I think having a single one is probably sort of understating the problem. I think there's uh, various different undiscovered territories in the world of sort of deep learning and neural networks that have yet to be explored. I mean, and things like this, there's a whole other, in terms of what we were talking about with natural language understanding, I think that's sort of a very darkly understood really right now. It's sort of dimly, Understood as to what one when what one needs to do to actually understand in a, in in this is the deepest word, deepest understanding of understand, which is circular, but understand what language means. There's sort of this whole undiscovered territory as to how to actually do things like this, and I think that researchers know this. I think the the, the progress one makes is really has to be at least to some extent kind of 
at least in the near term, kind of incremental. I mean, I think people were not worried they're going to get there to this point where you can sort of say, okay, here's a cat, like one example of a cat, and you can understand the concept cat, cat in any image or text or what have you, you see or hear. Um, but I don't think we're here, we're there yet. I mean, I don't think that we're to the point where we have sort of brain power <laughs> computers that are actually understand and see the world as a human does. Well, I think um, I've, I've heard it described as, you know, the human mind is very broad. So when you just, the simple word like cat carries with it an image, it carries with all the experiences you've ever had with a cat, stories about cats, facts about cats. Whereas uh, a computer right now is very narrow, but extremely fast. Yeah. It's so much faster than we can imagine, than the human, human brain can even conceive of, but it's super, super narrow. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think also which people postulate, I'd say, I, again, I don't know if it's true or not, is that, uh, let's say, human level intelligence or intelligence sort of on a human level requires embodiment, in some sense of the word. I mean, requires an agent, if they're going to perform at that level, then this agent or computer or what have you has to experience the world as we do, has to sort of live in the world and sort of know, like, okay, water is wet, whatever that might mean, because you can learn that in an abstract. I mean, someone could I, this is actually this sort of relatively famous project it's called Psych. From like the mid-80s until now, I guess Daniel Linnett is the name, I think is his name, has basically been cataloging kind of common knowledge about the world. And it's kind of, let's say, the amount of time to, to catalog this kind of common knowledge into an ontology is kind of exorbitant, I'd say, because he's doing it for the last 30 years or years. However, one could think of a kid, just a baby, a two or three year old kind of knows these things just from sort of the ability to kind of exist in this world and sort of test the world out to some extent, you know, you spill a glass of water on the floor, they realize, oh, if I spill a glass of water on the floor, the floor is going to be wet too, where it's sort of codifying that in some kind of logical machine learning, not even machine learning, logical sort of computable way of thinking about it, that's sort of super hard and in some sense kind of unnatural, I'd say. And so there's this whole kind of train of thought which it assumes that or thinks that or postulates that um, to actually understand the world in kind of a, a human-like way, one needs to actually embody the agent. So that the, body, the agent needs to be embodied in a robot, let's say, or whatever that might mean that actually sort of explores the world as a kid would. And so it would need it would need the same amount of inputs as, say, the human mind would have. Yeah. Or the, yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to fully understand. Well, you know, given the given that challenge, you know, a lot of people are are are, are worrying, even even Elon Musk, that that we could potentially create uh, artificial intelligence that would destroy us all or take all of our jobs. And there's all this um, there's all this doom and gloom around AI. And then I think on the other hand, there's there's this sort of glimmering future view of AI where uh, people like Ray Kurzweil are are hoping that AI will be able to solve all of mankind's problems and will be able to create these godlike entities. Um, you know, where do you stand on that on that spectrum? <laughs> or is it too early to tell? Or is, you know, a lot a lot I look at this stuff and I feel like, well, maybe it's just not even possible to create a, a brain in a computer. Maybe just, I mean, it's not. Yeah, I, I guess I'm somewhere in between. And maybe sort of, I, I think it's probably possible to create an intelligence which matches or probably exceeds ours, humans, meaning. Um, as to whether that leads to some AI apocalypse, by apocalypse, I don't really think that's the case. But at the same time, I'm not. I'm not really sort of. Let's say at one extreme or the other. I think I am I'm very much more kind of maybe more practical <laughs> yeah. thinking about it. I mean, I sort of try and think like, okay, what are we doing today? What, what can we do and expect in six months? 
maybe a year is kind of pushing it at the same time, sort of looking at a more limited sense of view. But I, I, I agree with a lot of people in that we should start thinking about sort of the implications of AI and sort of these emerging intelligences, emerging non-human intelligences. I think it's definitely worth thinking about the implica implications that they would have and do have in the world. Um, however, I, I, I think it's probably, there's no immediate need to worry that it's like the AIs are going to take over the world or anything like that. Yeah. I, mean, I think this will, you'll see that coming before it happens. <laughs> but at the yeah. same time, I think it's prudent and logical and just makes a lot of sense to actually start thinking about the implications that such yeah. things would have in the world. And I think we should probably do that and cheer on anyone that's actually sort of uh, thinking hard about this and thinking about the implications that will occur. Sure. And so you, you're with, and, and I know there was, there's surveys done of, of people working in the field, and a vast majority think that it is possible to create something that has human-like levels of intelligence in, in a machine. So you're you're oh, you're with them on that. You think that yeah. it, it's possible, yeah. yeah. And, and to have the same sort of the same sort of general intelligence that a person might have, and ability to <laughs> tackle multiple different kinds of problems. I mean, that's I'd say. To, to, I, that's an assumption. I'd say yeah. to say that to have general intelligence, we need to tackle multiple different types of problems. Could be. Could be we need to tackle multiple different types of problems. Could be there's some underlying algorithm that is yet to be found that allows the algorithm itself allows can learn or teach itself to actually tackle these multiple different problems. But the answer is I, I don't claim to know. Uh, I think yeah. probably no one knows really right now. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I mean, keep it a good secret. <laughs> oh sure, yeah. But I mean they think it's possible, which which is to me is just fascinating. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with I've seen that there's a new new methods of machine learning and that you're actually having a, a one machine uh, check another machine's work and they kind of bounce back and forth between one another and between the two of them can create something that's 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 better than either one of them alone and actually the the rate at which they learn is exponential again. I mean, that's an interesting sort of dovetailing on that is one of the ways that that can be kind of realized and one of the, like, the easier ways that that can be realized is within the framework of uh, games. And I think that's sort of why a lot of people are working on games and Go and chess and things like this because it's a complicated, like playing Go or playing chess or what have you is a complicated problem. However, sort of the constraints of the sort of the objective function as to what's good play or what's bad play is sort of relatively well defined. You know, if you if you, this program can beat this other program, it's better in some sense. And because it's got a concrete kind of reality check is built into the system, one can have a system where you have two different players and they play against one another maybe 100 games, and then if one of them wins, say, 55% of the games, then we know this one's better. And then we can build all future systems off of this better player, create sort of slightly different versions of it, have them play against one another, and have this exact kind of, let's say, uh, bootstrapping process that is, you were talking about that allows you to kind of create a, in particular, I'm thinking about Alpha over there right now, allows you to create a go-playing uh, agent that really can beat any human or any other computer on the planet in a matter of a few days. You can learn to go from absolutely no knowledge of Go to the best Go player on the planet in really a matter of a few days. It's not an exaggeration at all. It took about that long. And it's kind of amazing. I think that's one of the things where, what I was mentioning earlier in terms of you were saying, maybe we have to solve multiple problems to obtain sort of general levels of intelligence. I mean, maybe we don't, maybe we do. I, I really don't know the answer to that, but I mean, if one could formulate some kind of <clears throat> path to general intelligence in such a constrained way where one would know like, okay, these agents can play against one another and we know this one's better because it exhibits some 
better knowledge of general intelligence, whatever that might mean. I, I have no idea what that means, but if you could formulate the problem in that kind of way, then it would be conceivable that one could quickly evolve, teach, uh, create an uh, agent that has high levels of general, general, general intelligence, but at the same time, I don't know what this sort of competition would look like, let's say. I don't know what that would really mean in any sense of the word. I mean, maybe someone knows, but I, I don't claim to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, um, well, and it's, it's an evolutionary process, I think as well and a lot of and that's that's a lot of the processes that that lead to these algorithms or to these systems like AlphaGo mm -hmm. yeah and AlphaGo is um, a unique one so as far as games I understand that um, you know famously the, the world's best chess player was built but was beat by a computer long ago and but with chess I think the way that worked is it was brute forcing it right it was basically mm -hmm. Every time um, the player, the human player, would make a, make a move, the computer would calculate every single possible move that could be made into the future, which you can do with chess, and it brute forces its way into victory. That's how it does it. But with Go, I think there's a, there's a difference in that the game has so many possible moves that it, it's impractical to use that approach, and so it had to develop a sort of intuition. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, um, no, I think it's a reasonable to, yeah. reading of, of how they approach the problem because, I mean, for Go, I think there's around generically, like in any move, any board position, you have like around 200 different moves you can make, somewhere around that, and that forced people. I mean, the techniques that people, just as you said, the techniques that people use for chess just simply didn't work, where it's called a branching factor. Where the branching factor is 200, where the branching factor is so high, this old technique that people use for chess just simply didn't work for Go. And they had to essentially kind of create new techniques. And these new techniques are really, let's say, interesting in a way. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Sort of what they more or less did was train a neural network to kind of look at, look at the Go board is, you could say it's like an image in a way. It's just kind of... They use a lot of the same neural networks that are used to look at images, same neural networks of architectures that they use to look at images, and they use these to actually have the neural network kind of look at the board of Go, and from this it would sort of calculate possible future moves, sort of say, okay, this move has, is a good, with this probability, this move is good with this probability, this good is with this probability, but it wasn't sort of doing it in a kind of, I'm going to look 10 moves ahead and figure out, like, if I do this, if I do that, then this happens and this happens. It wasn't doing that. At least the core of the algorithm wasn't really doing that. The core of the algorithm was really kind of just going from picture of the board to kind of, oh, I think this is a good move or that's a good move. In terms of sort of, let's say, thinking moves ahead, they kind of didn't do that in the core neural network architecture. What they did is kind of stick a another layer on top of that, which is actually sort of a variant of a Monte Carlo tree search, which basically that sort of did the kind of look ahead to some extent, but it really wasn't a look ahead as deep as something as what the IBM team did for chess. It was very kind of a, say, much more shallow look ahead. And the reason it could be much more shallow is because the core neural network had this kind of intuition of board position. Yeah. And it really kind of, the thing is, the, the, the thing is, it learned this intuition more or less from self-play. So, I mean, what it would do is, is basically, uh, you have to play itself with various different sort of games, and it would store these games that it played. And because of this Monte Carlo tree search algorithm sitting on top of this sort of neural network, the games that were played would be, have stronger play than could be given by only using the neural network alone. So these were saved played, played games. They could use these saved played games to actually train the neural network itself, kind of make the neural network itself much stronger. But when they took this neural network itself and plugged it into the Monte Carlo tree search, this combination was stronger than the previous versions of the system. And they could just essentially bootstrap the system where it would kind of learn from itself and learn from itself and learn from itself and learn from itself. And each time it played a game, it would be stronger because it would essentially have a stronger neural network and a stronger neural network would be made even stronger by using the minor crawl tree search and then the saved games would be better than the games that the neural network could play. So it sort of 
bootstrapped itself, split itself up from essentially nothing, essentially random initialization to this ability to play better than any human has ever played in really days. Yeah, that's, that's really incredible. I, I know. I'd have to go back to you. So you called it a Monte Carlo tree? Is that what you were saying? Search. Yeah, Monte, Monte Carlo tree search. Yeah, it's, what it is, it's basically kind of, I say about this thing, it's, it's a way of looking at moves, possible moves, and looking at sort of possible counter moves, and counter moves those counter moves. And what it does is basically allows you to do this in a, in a way you don't have to necessarily explore kind of all possible moves. You explore some subset of moves, and then you, in, the, in the exploring the subset of moves, you realize which moves are better moves, and these better moves are kind of explored in more detail. So it kind of learns which moves are in the process of exploring these moves. It kind of learns to ignore the ones which are not profitable, not really good moves, and it learns to sort of concentrate its effort on these other moves which have a larger payoff. So it kind of learns that in the process of doing this tree search, and as a result of that, it doesn't have to, say, explore all possible moves in kind of a dumb way, not dumb way, dumb way, so overstating it, in the way that the, the IBM chess computer would ex have to explore kind of more systematically all moves. It, it basically kind of gets this kind of intuition, this maybe, might have, maybe not even too strong of a word to use, intuition mm -hmm. as to what set of moves are very good moves, and then it explores those in more detail, and, and then kind of ignores the ones it finds um, are not profitable. And because it can kind of concentrate its computational effort on profitable moves, it's actually able to more quickly learn and more quickly become sort of a really strong player. It seems like a much more natural way to learn and play a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. seems so. Yeah, kind of close to the way a, a, a person would learn. I agree. That I agree. sort of yeah, that's very fascinating. So, uh, what is what is your idea of a, a successful agent look like? Does it look like Jarvis <laughs> from Iron Man? Like, are, do you want to have? Um, you know, we already have this. The, the the breadth of human knowledge in our pockets in the cell phone. Um, but it's it doesn't really you, you can't talk to it you can't mm -hmm. ask it to do things so you know what what is your dream of the perfect <laughs> agent you know I mean is it the sci-fi dream of you know hey make my coffee and then you know book the uh, make sure that my trip is booked on time and this sort of like uh, agent running around in the in the computer world doing things for us huh I mean. I think it's, I think probably current agents are, I mean, understandably so, I think just in terms of technology and the limits of current technology, I think current agents are really limited in a way. I mean, they're kind of more geared towards very limited actions, like, hey, what was the baseball score last night? Something like this, and they could tell you this. Whereas I, my view as to where agents can be, I'd say, they can do, they should be able to do the sort of current things that agents are doing in this very limited sort of realm of like, hey, what's the baseball score? But I think also they should be, for lack of a better term, kind of human. I mean, you should be able to really hold conversations with them and actually have them, again, use this word that we've been using, understand what you're saying in some sense of the word. I mean, where it could be understanding in the sense of like I would think oh this thing understands me in the same way that a human understands me I think getting there I don't know if anyone really knows how to do that really right now but I, I, my view of agents should be able to be a companion too that you could actually talk to as you would talk to a human and you would treat this agent in any real sense of the word as a human just at least in the way you would talk to it and expect from it and expect it to treat you. I mean, that's sort of where I would like things to be. I mean, I guess the one thing I have to do in the back of my head now is sort of how, I don't know if you've seen the movie Her, but sort of the way the agent, I guess it's OS and actually the movie, is interacts with people, where it sort of it interacts, at least initially, in a very human level. I mean, it's very, it is, to a real extent, very human. 
maybe it doesn't have the experience and embodied experience as a human, but it is human in any kind of real sense of the word. It's wonderful. I mean, she has a, she has a wonderful sense of humor. She gets yeah. him right off the bat. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a great movie. I love that movie. Her, I think it you know explores AI in a really great way, and I think makes an excellent point too. I mean, the way that the the movie ends is is a <laughs> is is poignant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we've gone over time. I think. I'm not sure. I know you have a busy day ahead of you. So. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for just rambling on. You know, though, thank <laughs> you. This is really fun. I love talking about this stuff and, and being able to talk to an expert who's been in it um, since the very beginning is, is a treat. It's a pleasure. The thing to understand is that AI learns at an exponential rate. So while six years ago there was no Siri, Tomorrow, Siri could be as smart as me, probably even smarter, given my background. The question remains, how smart will AI get? And will AI take all of our jobs? I don't know. And even if AI does take all of our jobs, is that a big deal? I have a sneaking suspicion that if we do create anything that's smarter than us, It'll quickly realize that most of our jobs are pretty pointless anyway, and tell us just to go play in a field. That's my hope anyway. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I am constantly looking for new people to chat with about science and technology. I'd appreciate it if you know anybody who wants to have an engaging and fun conversation. Just send them my way. My email is dustin at dustindriver.com. You can learn more about me at my website, dustindriver.com. You can learn more about Project Common Voice at voice.mozilla.org. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can pop over there and contribute your own voice to Project Common Voice. Go ahead and help out the future of humanity or humanity's descendants. Learn how to recognize voice. I mean, hey, why not, right? Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we continue through the unknown.